Hey, Jason here, and today you're listening to a very special episode of Stark Naked Numbers. Today, I'm joined live in the studio by Toby Pierce. He's the founder and CEO of the hugely popular Sweat Fitness app, which he successfully bootstrapped to a peak of $100 million of turnover and sold for $400 million just a few years ago. In this pod, we go over the profits and numbers of Sweat, how he thinks about managing people and problem solving, his relationship with money, asset allocation, life after the exit, and what he spends his money on. Toby is one of the most impressive people that I've ever personally met, and as you'll hear, one of the sharpest minds you'll come across in business. All right, let's get into it. So Toby, good to see you. Uh-huh. Uh, Thanks for having me. No, you're very welcome. We've we've met a couple of times in real life, um, but I've obviously been following you uh, from the outside for a couple of years. Um, so what I know about you, uh, you're most well known for selling SweatApp or mm-hmm. building and swelling, scaling and selling SweatApp for reportedly $400 million mm-hmm. a few years ago with your ex-partner Kayla. Um, I think they read the business was doing, did about 100 mil of turnover at its peak, yep. um, completely bootstrapped as well, which is yep. enormously yep. impressive. And that was a few years ago now. Uh, today you're doing... Uh, bit of consulting work to yep. a lot of high growth founders and also the CEO of Easy License, which is like a marketplace for, for learner drivers. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. So, and you're still young, right? How, how old are you? Like early 30s? Just, just turned 31. Yeah, yeah, that's so impressive. So, like, so I'd like to like sort of start with Sweat, uh, like amazing outcome, obviously. Um, and I think you, you and Kayla created that, uh, built and sold the business in what was it five years or? Yeah, so, sort of. Yeah, there was a couple of different stages of businesses beforehand but effectively yeah it was we kicked it off at the end of 2015 like as an app and yeah sold it sort of middle of 2021 and we would have probably sold it two years earlier but the deal fell through like 32 hours before it was meant to close so uh, oh I, look, yeah. to a different different yeah buyer. different buyer oh my yeah. gosh right yeah. uh, that would have sucked <laughs> it was uh very character building yeah, yeah. i bet i bet <laughs> um and so what i think what's my, you're one of the most more impressive people i've met uh throughout my short career but um you know to build that amount of value in a relatively short amount of time we're talking what five or six years mm. most people don't ride successfully ride and catch a wave mm. like that, right? Mm. Um, so I'm really curious to understand. First question, like, was a business always profitable from day one or was it one of those typical kind of J-curve business models? No, uh, it was uh, like hyper profitable uh, early on. And then we deliberately kind of like invested out of that, um, you know, to effectively achieve that, you know, really accelerated growth up until exit. Um and, yeah, and that was really just like a judgment call based on what was happening in the market at the time, what was like attractive to investors because there was a lot of other, yeah, there was billions of dollars of VC investment floating around in the fitness industry, most of which imploded um, yeah. shortly after or while we were doing our deal. Um, you know, Peloton probably being the best example. They built you know, 55 billion US worth of market cap over a sort of a six or seven year period um, uh, listed in the US. Now it's worth 1.47 Yeah, they're billion. a shell of what they were. Yeah, yeah. Hemorrhaging money. Um, and so what was the first iteration of, I guess, Sweat? Because you mentioned there were a few yeah. stages of it. Uh, super short, uh, in-person personal training, like developed the, I guess, philosophy or methodology for training for women. That went to group fitness franchises. Where I launched a few of them um, myself. I was, I don't know, 19 or 20, I think, when I started that. So you're selling programs to other personal trainers? to sell No, them? so I employed trainers to oh, run, you know, like classes on my behalf. Yeah. Um, that then presented the, this whole opportunity for, well, people want to be able to do stuff outside of those classes and they want to know what to eat, et cetera, et cetera. And it sounds very obvious now, but you create content, you know, and give to them, which was not very obvious. It was pretty much infomercials at that point. Yeah. Um, 
you know, then the internet and Instagram and all these sorts of things, you know, sort of started to become quite popular. So had sort of jumped on that you know, opportunity and basically, yeah, I guess further digitized the content that was being sold into eBooks. The eBooks, you know, we sold, um, you know, for a, sort of a couple of years. Uh, that, you know, that business was ridiculously profitable, like 70% EBITDA margin. Like it was crazy. <laughs> Just like, you know, really, really generated a huge amount of cash um used that cash effectively then to you know invest into you know building the app uh primary purpose for that was i didn't think the ebook business was uh, you know sustainable like long term and predictable and all that and also i didn't really think it was like exitable yeah um you know like key man risk talent dependence um category dependence etc cetera, etc cetera. so effectively designed the whole idea of like sweat was really to design out of you know that position yeah uh which uh, conveniently worked, uh, you know, kind of right time, right place, right idea. Um, and yeah, I've always had over time, mobile app, subscription business, full digital video content, a couple hundred countries, 12 languages, all the currencies, all the, all the stuff. Yeah. So, so the ebook business, so you were literally selling PDFs. Yeah. On yeah Instagram yeah. is that literally yeah. what it was? Yeah. We went from, it was, I think about, about five, know, about 5 million bucks in the first 12 months. Um, <laughs> and like, yeah, you know, three and a half, four of that was like literally straight cash bottom line that was then used to build the next iteration of the ebook business, which I can't remember where we, exactly where we got to, maybe 20, 25 million a year, 15 or so EBITDA, 15, 16 EBITDA. Selling ebooks. Yeah, which is like, again, crazy. It's um, and, you know, I always like to caveat this with like, I would love to be able to say I'm special and smart and, but really a lot of that like made some smart decisions build an all right product and was at the right time. You know, like, cause if you were trying to do this now, you know, uh, CPMs for uh, advertising costs across like all the meta platforms and other digital platforms are multiples more expensive. Yep. You had more data then, so you could optimize easier. Don't have that now. Um, Pre iOS 14. Yeah. Yeah. All the IDFA, you know, stuff. And I think as well, you know, as like a, a kind of a meta, like um, not meta, the company, like a, a meta view of, marketing economics and marketing science like uh channel fatigue had not really set in in a lot of those channels so you know now like the idea of an influencer promoting something or an ad being on a social channel or whatever is normal yeah back then you know like uh instagram didn't even have videos they didn't have messages they had nothing like it was literally just straight up you know photos with filters yeah it was real wild west and so the Wild West is where a lot of these opportunities are born, but then once it's no longer the Wild West because everyone else has jumped on it, yeah. you know the the economics don't stack up the same way. So yeah. obviously very happy with what was achieved, but you know I don't think it would be reasonable to say that it was kind of like all you know me or the team or whatever. It was, it was a lot of that plus right time. Yeah, so I'm really interested in that right time piece because mm. you need to have chops to understand opportunities. So mm. you know, people talk about luck, and yeah. I, I've been reading a lot about luck because mm. you know, I've had conversations like this and a few other who you know tech quote unquote successful people yeah. have achieved a lot in business and you know you, you try to break it down it's like why how are you successful like what mm. what were the attributes and and a lot of them just frankly say it was good time right place right mm. time but that's a kind of a very humble response mm. in a lot of ways it's like oh mm. i was just there and happy to be the person that pursued this um, mm. but that takes skill to identify opportunities so what were the the foundations to identifying that mm. holy shit this instagram thing because i know jim like there are a lot of fitness brands that blew yep. up here and that yep. like i think gymshark was another yep. one which really um got rode that wave of you mm. know um you know bodybuilders in the gym like there's, yep. a, there's a big community around this let's let's 
moving to merch as opposed to what you guys do, yeah. which is eBooks and then yep. content. Um, how did you, what, yeah, what was it that allowed you to spot the opportunities? There has to be like a backstory mm. to that as well. Right? Well, yeah, like it's so on the luck part, like uh, you can almost look at this, there's some, like the ecological impact, you know, of the founder and the entrepreneur at the time is I think very often like underrated and people will often say yeah, it's timing and luck, which for sure we could, you know, genericize that's a thing, but it's like, yeah. okay, I just happen to be interested in fitness. Yeah. I happen to be of the mindset that I am, which is a, I am an independent critical thinker. I don't, I'm, I don't like to follow the idea. I always want to prove, you know, prove something out. Um, yeah, I happen to be a personal trainer in a gym that happened to have a lot of like middle-aged young mums or soon-to-be mums, happened to build great relationships with them, you know, happened to have access to some local parks where I could run some boot camps, happened to be the right age that I understood digital because Facebook was getting big in the end of my high school period, um, happened to be really interested in technology my whole life and happened to have some business interests. And so like the combination of all of those things, so if you were just a fitness person, you might not have drawn the same parallels that I drew. If you were just a tech person, you wouldn't have drawn them in fitness. And so like very often, if we look historically at a lot of organizations at work, like uh, in their particular time, it become great businesses. And you know, I mean, Apple is probably a great example. To build a computer required five, six or seven different technologies all to come together at the same time. If you didn't exist in that environment with that interest, with that you know, you know, belief system and personality, you could have never built that company. Yeah. Right. If you tried to do it now, the environment's different. Right. And so, you know, if in this particular context, I happen to have tech interest, business interest, fitness interest, you know, and knowledge, kind of some knowledge across all of them. I happen to be young, happen to be a little bit naive, you know, and all those things kind of, you know, came together at the same time. So you can call that timing and luck and whatever. But I think from a more analytical standpoint, yeah, there's, there's lots of other factors that, that contribute. For sure. And so your issue with Kayla, was that, did mm-hmm. you, were you kind of in the background kind of pushing that image of like, hey, let's build it, the yeah. influence, I guess the influence, was that even a term back in the day or was this, you need to build, no, you build following profile? The word influencer didn't even exist. It was, you're a celebrity or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And then the idea of an influencer, you know, grew. And, and so like using Gymshark as an example, they're probably one of the earliest and best examples of the current model. And again, it's a little, it's augmented a bit over time, but of the current model of using uh, influence that people wield to, you know, leverage sales. And obviously, you know, if you look at like another great example, Nike, they used exactly the same strategy at a different time, time. right? Therefore in a different fashion, you know, to achieve that. And this will continue, you know, the cycle will continue again and again and again. And when you look at this, like, probabilistically how many businesses built fitness apps or did fitness clothing mm. literally millions yeah. like millions of them yeah out of those there's going to be a few that break through yes yeah sweat was one in our industry that broke through well yeah, yeah. and i think the difference with like the whole influencer creator movement i think mm. that the because i always look to look at businesses in different inflection points because yes. you spoke about like nike and, and jordan right mm. like influencer mm. like growth or yep. marketing is never is not a new thing. People no. have been doing it for decades. The model is different. The model has changed because Instagram really lowered the barrier, barriers of entry for influencers, yep. for, for creators to become influencers, right? Yep. Like I don't need to go through an agent to find Michael Jordan who happens to pay for the yeah. play for the balls. Yeah. You know, I I can become an influencer, right? Just by anyone can. You know, anyone can, right? Um, just it's a dangerous by, place to be as well, just as a side <laughs> note. <laughs> yeah. So, like, what? Because there's a big trend of like, in, like, um, cradle led businesses, like, like yeah. Mr. Beast, you know, um, 
There's, you know, Jake Paul. Like, yeah. there's a bunch of these business. And you, you question, like, Primo, if you've tried Prime Energy drinks, mm. like, my personal opinion only, it tastes <laughs> horrible. Like, yeah. not my thing. Uh, but obviously, making billions probably of dollars mm. Um, mm. to him and whoever his partner is. Like, do you think, see that, do you see that as a fad? Because you, I guess you, you rode that early wave. Yeah. I think it's an interesting, uh, this, is, this is an interesting topic in general, right? Because we are looking at all of this with a very constrained time window. Mm. Right. Yes. So if you were in the early 2000s and you looked at what was going on in tech, you'd be like, oh my God. Yeah. Look at all the stuff. Yeah. Shortly after, bang. Yeah. You know, and so, um, uh, you know, it's my professional view that this also goes bang. Uh, it, it will decline, but I don't think it'll be an explosion in the same way that tech was because it's sort of like the bigger the stretch, the bigger the snapback. Right. Yes. And I think at the moment, you know, again, looking at the Paul Brothers or Mr. Beast and, you know, all these sorts of groups. Um, I don't even think people know how to accurately value these types of businesses. Yeah. I don't think that the law, um, and I don't mean your M and I mean like your contract law and IP law. I don't even think that is up to date with what's happening. Yeah, yeah. And we had a huge amount of experience of this negotiating with talent, you know, all over the world. I don't think half the lawyers have no idea. None. Yeah, you know, they take a purely legal view on something which destroys the commercial, uh, the underlying commercial like principles for the deals to happen. So, what's an example of that? Yeah, that um, oh, just you know the way that people will try to value talent. Hmm. There is no method. So if I say to you, you know, value this business asset, you go, okay, well, what industry is it in? What are the comps? Okay, forward-looking cash flow, maybe if you're going to do a DCF. Yeah. Like, you, there's, there's a list of you know, methods, NTA, DCF, comps, you know, however you choose to, to do it, right? Yeah. When you get a value, in, uh, value like in influencers, it's like their version of comps is uh, we have like similar followers, so I should get paid the same. And it's like, okay, cool. So if there's 10 Hungry Jacks and 10 Maccas and 10 KFC and 10 Subway, they should be valued the same. Like that, that's literally the equivalent of the approach. I'm like, it's so, uh, I, you know, I refer to this as like a low fidelity view on a highly complex multifactorial problem, right? Um, and so at the moment, it's still like the Wild West. People will negotiate and say, oh, like, oh, I've got the same followers as them. Oh, but okay, cool. But they're growing 30% a year. You're growing one. You've got this audience. They've got that audience. Yeah. You know, geo demo, however you want to, you know, look at it right. The value is, you know, it's not the same. Yes. Um, but lawyers who are very often the ones negotiating on behalf of these people or agents, you know, who also are very often negotiating on behalf of talent. They really have no idea that issues, deals that got done. But if we go back to the tech piece, it's like, well, lots of deals got done during the tech bubble. Were any of them a good idea? Huge amounts of them were terrible ideas. And in retrospect, everyone goes, oh my God, like, why do we invest in that? That was the dumbest idea ever. Yeah. Right. But you don't know that like hindsight bias obviously can't exist until the period of time has come to a close or has enough has gone by. Yeah. And hindsight bias is also kind of always, you know, crisp vision or 2020 or however you want to, you look at it, everyone goes, oh, that was obvious. I'm like, but it, it wasn't obvious in the moment. Yeah. And that's like the important thing. Yeah. Um. So yeah, like I think there's still another five or 10 years probably for that you know, the creator economy, if you want to use that to, mm. to prove it out. And also as well, I think the important thing will be to look at like who who actually is a primary beneficiary. Yeah. So like if you look at companies like Prime, um, uh, you know, the, the Rocks Tequila brand, you know, like these sorts of things. And I use those because they're, you know, theoretically were created by the founders and whatever, not really, but that's, that's <laughs> yeah. the story that they sold. Exactly. Like when you look at those, like who's really winning? It's like, well removing any cash incentives like just looking at equity basically everyone who comes in when it is successful loses yeah kind of like the ipo market yeah most of the most of the winning on ipos is done by institutional investors yeah and whatever in the pre-ipo or kind of series you know dcba like depending on where you came in um most people that are involved after that lose and so like you know the 
founder, entrepreneur, talent probably wins a decent amount. Normally there's some PE or VC involved. They normally win a bit. But then after that, it kind of fizzles out. Yeah. Right. Like I've seen that now. Yeah. The corrections. Yeah. And, and again, this is something that not a lot of people talk about publicly. And that is that um, if you, yeah, looking at this objectively, like most businesses over the long term fail and die. Almost a hundred percent, yeah. But that's very rarely spoken about, or if it is, it's a very, very short period of time. But when a business is like on the rise, raising VC, winning, does an IPO or an exit or whatever, it's like cool. This is great, hurrah! We talk about that because it's you know it's a cool win. But after that, you know, five or ten years later, let's say, let's say the rocks sell has sold a tequila company. It's been bought by I don't know, an equity group or some other you know kind of strategic aggregator. Cool, and five, 10, 15 years later, it dies. So it's it's no longer cool then because it's old and the rock's no longer involved and you know, all this sort of stuff. So we don't really get like a fair, real analysis on the health and value of the companies that are being built, which creates a very like unsafe culture of commerce, you know, for certain people involved in that so, area. So do you think? So let's apply that lens to sweat. Do you think mm. sweat is or will be an enduring brand? Uh, enduring, like let's let's put a time scale on that. Maybe 10, 15 years. Yeah. Yeah, but like after that, you know, without and you know, and like all you know things in market analysis, without like significant change, adaptation to technological trends, et cetera, et cetera, no, yeah. it wouldn't be. Yeah. Um, uh, but in saying that, you had a huge way about the huge like underlying thesis and the basis upon which the organization was built was to achieve uh, like entity independence. So it's like it's not there's no key man risk. Yeah. So I don't know exactly where the you know business is at now, but. Uh, the trend that it was moving towards when we gotten rid of it was, you know, two or three people contributed like 95% of the revenue. Yep. We were rapidly, you know, scaling that down by bringing in other people. Is in the trainers like mm. that, yeah. So imagine like if Netflix had three videos and one of them was watched by everyone and two wasn't. Yes. Right? That, that's kind of the equivalent. Obviously, yep. they've built the capability over time to do that. That's what makes Netflix enduring. Mm-hmm. If they couldn't repeat, it wouldn't be enduring, yep. right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But even that, like if you went back 20 years and said, oh, well, television, will Channel 9, Channel 10, Channel 7 be enduring? Everyone would be like, well, of course. You're an idiot. Why, why would you ever think not? Yeah. yeah. Like News Corp will be safe forever. Yeah. And and now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So time scale is a really important thing when considering this. And again, like it's all based on your objectives because if for, for me, my objective was build equity value and exit. Yeah. So I, I achieved my goal. Yeah. If you were to publicly list that and then look at it in 10 or 15 years' time, would it be a great idea? Well, for the non-IPO investors, like pre-IPO institutional group for the mums and dads and the brokers and whatever, probably not. And that's kind of the general trend for like 99% of businesses. I won't name names, but about 80 or 90% of the uh, IPOs that were done uh, during COVID, however you look at that time span, about 90% of that equity value is gone. The equity funds, the institutional investors and some of the founders made heaps. Everybody else, see you later. Yeah, so so I think the timescale is important Yeah, when looking at value derived and who, you know, ultimately who is the, the beneficiary. So you set the goal. So you, your goal was to build equity value and sell. Like why yeah. why did you what, what formulate to, to get to that? Well, yeah. Why was that the mission for you personally? Yeah, so I, I like to practice like radical transparency with this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the honest answer early on was because that's what I saw in America. Like li- literally that simple. Like I, and I, I think this is something that a lot of people who have um, had any degree of success uh, – sometimes fall into the trap of they give the answer based on what they understand now. They don't answer the question based on what they understood then. Yeah. So at that point in time, I was like, all I saw was, oh my God, VC, 
capitalism, yeah, America, awesome, yeah, <laughs> win, yeah, and that was literally that simplistic. It right. was that was the dream. I love it. You know, um, maybe a year later, I was like, spoke to about 150 investors and heard about some failures. I was like, okay, that's not great. Started to understand it a little bit more about like long-term business. I'd read the Intelligent Investor and read all of Buffett's minutes for like 30 years and all this. And I'm like, well, these guys are pretty good at this. I'm not. And so I would. it would be really irrational for me to believe that I understand something that they don't, at least until I can prove it, yeah. right? Haven't proven it. You know, so what can be learned? And the more I looked at it, I was like, cool, this type of business structured in this way, blah, 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 may not be the best thing to hold forever, which reinforced my exit idea, yeah. but added a lot of subtle nuance about how to get you know the deal done. And that was so the reason why we initially gone to market in 2019. I would have articulated it in a less sophisticated manner at the time, but basically it was because I knew the market was about to peak for that business in that industry at that time. And so like there was so much... Uh, frothy you know activity going on this is right pre-covid um your vcs are just throwing money at subscription businesses of any type and then health and fitness and mindfulness oh my god the industry is kager is 25 percent. let's go you know and you know you can you can always see this if you look at like big statista or like you know broad spectrum like market research reports who's looking at those all the vc and pe funds if it says this industry is good go yeah, like it's it's kind of that simple, right? I wish it wasn't, but it kind of really is that way. You know, there's two points I want to unpack just from what that passage sure. you just shared. So the first one was, uh, you know, I think a lot of people romanticize business and and particular mission statements. It's like, you know, yeah. you, you could have said, well, it was easy. My mission was to, you know, get get um, you know women with our target market to be yep. fitter, healthier, more active, yep. lower rates of obesity around the world, yep. change people's lives, right? Yep. And that's a that is a mission statement and, yep. you know, you probably had a narrative like that to inspire yep. the troops, to get everyone driven, motivated. Yep. But <laughs> your intrinsic mission is to, to get people's money from their bank account into your money from mm. a bank account, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and like, <laughs> and, and I think people think that's a bad thing. No. I, like, but the thing is, like, and I always look at this and, again, this is my um, attempted impartial view. You know, we had tens of millions of people around the world who got at least some benefit from our product. In exchange for that, we were able to employ hundreds of people who presumably got benefit from their salary and education, their family, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we were able to support lots of other businesses on that journey, which added a huge amount of benefit. We're able to support landlord and property owners for, you know, things we, the, the list goes on. Mm. And then I got to make some money. Yes. Yeah. And I love that like, answer because a lot of people aren't just, you know, to say that is like, mm. well, that's what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm unshamedly tell people like, what's your yeah. goal to build my net worth? Like yeah. that's literally my goal. And you know, the, the goal, our mission of our holding company, which mm. is not public, is like mm. our goal is to compound capital at twenty five greater than twenty five percent per year. Right. And then that's you'll be our mission. and you'll be in the upper quintile performance for all investment funds in Australia and the global stature a bit different, but yeah, for Australia. And yeah. then you can objectively say, well, we did it as one of the best here. Yeah, and we we try the best, and you know, we've got these results, and like that's continues to be the mission, right? Yeah. Um, it's not some grandiose kind of grandiose view of I want to you know, make everyone's lives better or change the world. And I think that as entrepreneurs, mm. they, we include myself have fallen into that mm. trap where you think you need to come up with this big mission statement, and it's fluff. It is fluff. Mm. It has its purpose, right? Yeah. Because mm. it's for the reasons that we spoke about before, but. You know, I love that you're so very transparent and radical about that. No, the goal was to make mm. sure you tell me. <laughs> well, yeah, but like, and this is a thing. I that's my personality, yeah. you know, and 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 we could talk a lot about what that indicates about who I am, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and both of us and where I sit on the spectrum and whatever. But I think, like, 
the thing is, yeah, I think I actually said this to someone the other day. I was like, man, I was like, you know, proven methods for like winning are massively overrated, right? And practicality is massively underrated, massively. Like just kind of do what needs to be done to achieve the goal. And, and even on this, like the strategy or strategic planning thing, however you choose to label it, it's like, well, for the organization, it's a comms tool. That's a communications framework designed to achieve alignment, reduce friction in decision-making, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And then from a commercial perspective, you know, a strategy or a strategic plan or however you want to label it really is, you know, in a, in a formulaic sense, it's the goals that you set, like the measures that you set for things you want to achieve. It's the work that you believe creates the basis to generate those results. It's the resources you acquire and or commit to deliver the work. And then it's the way you justify it. That's the formula, right? And so when you add things like, you know, a, a vision or a mission or purpose or whatever, yes, that's arguably part of a strategic, you know, management framework or a planning framework. Absolutely sure. But you still can't get away from the fact that the reason those things are there to get teams aligned and reduce decision-making friction, et cetera, et cetera, is so you can achieve the goal by doing this work, by using those resources based on the information that you have and the way you articulate this reasoning, right? That's still the underlying goal. And like the reality is, and I, I very often say this to people who like to use the fluff and I'm like, I understand why, but I'm like, if you achieved that goal and lost all of your money, is that success? And no one's ever said yes. Yeah. So I'm like, cool, well then let's start from the position saying, well, what is success? Then let's figure out how we communicate that to get engagement with the team. Yeah, I love that. Not the other way around. Don't way, don't yeah. engage the team and then hope you win. That's, that's not capitalism, yeah. right? And as much as people might like to deny it, if you're not doing this to achieve business goals and all go on a journey and win and grow and all this sort of stuff, it's like, well, then either don't play the game go and build a charity, you know, or something else. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like I have no, there's no judgment on that, but it's like, I think the, it's more so that people want to live under this, like, you know, what you said, like romanticized view of like what, what entrepreneurship is cool. I can put it in my bio. I can have this job title. I can signal these virtues, you know, that, that I uphold when the reality is like that, that that's not even remotely close to what business actually is or is meant to be about. Um, so you sold the business like at the peak, right? Just before, mm. you know, just pre-COVID, yeah. but you, you said before that you noticed warning uh, signals. There were signals that yeah. kind of led you to believe that you were at top of market. Like yeah. what were those? Yeah, so yeah, look, I think like seeing the amount of money come into the industry, the investment, uh, frankly, the the crappy deals that were getting done, you know, massively overvalued with all these, you know, like silly criteria present. And I think as well, like looking at a lot of like indirect strategic, so people who have potentially some interest, but not like a direct interest in the industry at the time, kind of throwing money in, you know, to see what happens. Yeah. Um, along with that, all the technological barriers coming down, hundreds and thousands and millions of other, you know, small competitors coming in, certainly you made all that true. And I think there's also this notion of like progressively increasing anxiety, you know, that comes along with that and realizing that, yeah, circling back around this realization, sorry, that if you don't believe you've got a 10, 15, 20 year thing here, well, how do you maximize value and maximizing value normally be an exit for a business of that type of that size in that market at that time not always but you know if those criteria are present yeah. um and so yeah i think for me trying to you know read the tea leaves you know in some regard that presented the the obvious need to kind of you know to, to, to transact at that point in time yep um 
and so yeah, that was that was the plan. Yeah, cool. So you're now running Easy License, yeah. uh, which is very different model from yeah. from the outside. Like, how is growing Easy License different to Sweat? But first, a quick message from our sponsor. Are you tired of traditional accounting firms that only focus on tax and compliance? Looking for a financial partner that can go beyond the numbers and reveal the story those numbers are telling? SBO Financial aren't your typical business accountants. We're your dedicated financial management team, empowering you to take control of your finances and gain clarity and confidence in your business. Sure, it will keep your books in order and file your taxes. But unlike traditional firms, we'll also go beyond financial hygiene to give you the forward-looking insights and strategies you need to grow your cash and profitability. Picture this, a team of chartered accountants, CPAs, bookkeepers, payroll specialists, and financial analysts all working together to help you grow your business. With SBO, you gain access to a collective team of experts and specialists, providing you with proactive advice and analysis. So don't settle for reactive advice. Stop looking backwards and start looking forwards with SBO Financial, your partner in financial management and growth. Visit our website or contact us today for a free financial health check at sbo.financial. Uh, yeah, so two things. I mean, one is exactly the same and two, it's completely different. <laughs> um, I think it's exactly the same in the sense that, you know, business management is business management, people management is people management, marketing and finance, they're all, they're still the same thing. Some businesses like, taste like, like chicken, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's all like chicken. Um but I think then in saying that, uh, the ability to make you know rapid, high quality decisions about the business model, you're fundamentally different. So, like if we just use the example of finance, right? Um, so, okay, cool. Yes, I understand three way financial modeling and can read a P and L and can do all this stuff and can manage you know manage from the financial statements. But uh, you know when you're in a business for a period of time, let's say three, four, five years, well, every time you you know, create a budget or do a reforecast. It's like, oh, is that the right way to define that metric? And is that, are we tracking that the right way? And is that the right way to consider it? And does this belong in that group or this group? You know, how do we attribute it? You know, you, that, that's years and years of refinement to get to a point of, um, I mean, I, I, would, I wouldn't say I had like subscription mastery, but I definitely got pretty, pretty good at it. Yeah. Um, so although I might be okay at, you know, finance or this, that, the other, it's like you get into a new business, it's like, well, hold on, these are new costs. These are new line items. It's a different P&L structure. You know, we went from, so Sweat was a direct-to-consumer subscription model, if you want to think about it that way. Um, you know, it was largely, you know, demand and consumption-driven modeling, right? So in other words, we, how much demand could we drive? What engagement would that result in? Reflective of the engagement, what retention would that result in? And therefore, you know, what are the underlying economics of the model? Um, in a marketplace business model, which is what Easy License is, uh, it's, there's effectively no real relation you know, in the sense so it's like okay well the your ultimately ultimate goal is to build your network density so that you can maximize liquidity in a specific market normally defined geographically uh you know we model that um at, at this point in time you know, our approach to modeling is supply driven so it's completely the other way around so in other words Sweat has workouts. It can sell workouts. Adding more workouts doesn't necessarily directly relate to that. You would do demand modeling. Yeah. You know, so how many users can we drive? Whereas with this, well, we can't sell lessons to learners or we, the unit for us is a booking hour. Yeah. We can't sell a booking hour if we don't have a booking hour to sell. Yeah. We don't have a booking hour to sell unless we have an instructor. Yes. So we, it's the model is effectively completely the other way around. So yeah. we do supply, supply up modeling. Supply capture as opposed yeah. to demand. Yep. And then so then the... The art or science of that basically becomes or how accurate or predictable can we make the 
generation of supply or booking hours modeled with the predictability around utilization of those booking hours, which is then demand driven. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, And so what, uh, talk about trends and opportunities, what what opportunities do you see in the market that if you weren't already pursuing or you've thought about, what what do you think entrepreneurs could be looking at um, that you've noticed, identified? Yeah. I think we're at an interesting time in technology. So I think over the last, I mean, a long time now, but, uh, you know, my lifespan, you know, from the late 90s to sort of early 2000s, so much new tech, you know, and in my opinion, simple tech, like as in tech that can be broadly understood by people who are non-technical, right, um, has presented all these massive, you know, uh, opportunities. So like, you know, as an entrepreneur, maybe I can't build a website, but I can understand what a website is and how to use a website and, you know, conversion rate optimization. I might not be a marketing scientist, but I can kind of generally, you know, fumble my way through that. Yeah. Right? And so that presented huge opportunities and we've seen that over the last two plus decades. Now we're moving into this world where a lot of the technology that is like really snazzy that is coming is uh, almost not at all understandable by general individuals. So space tech, most of you are already out. AI, machine learning, most of you are already out. So like that, and that's not, more or less complex it's just less generally understood as an idea um and so one i think that rules out a lot of opportunity for a huge amount of people you know two i think a lot of the tech we're looking at the moment is like kind of at the beginning of the garden hype curve i don't know if you've you've seen this before but like this idea that you know new technology is effectively useless for a long time until it becomes practical right and then people can kind of you know jump in we're not yet practical with a lot of this stuff so a lot of people will say chat GPT and AI saving my life, data analysis, blah, blah, blah. It's like, but most people don't really have any idea what they're talking about. Help me right? write an email. Um. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> most people have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, and, and and I say that respectfully, but yes. that, that's kind of the way that it is. Yeah. Um, and so like by virtue of that, yes, there's heaps of cool like business opportunities there, but they're not broadly applicable to you know everybody. I'd say that you know, bigger opportunities like you know, the creator economy, this, the e-com you know, economy, like they're huge opportunities. They're probably going to become less easy, obvious, and broadly available over the next five or 10 years. Yeah. Um, if, you know, if you were to like subtly change the question, like say if you had a little bit of pre-existing capital, like where's the opportunity? I think that's quite different. You know, like I think, uh, and we've spoken about this a bit, you know, the small to medium-sized businesses that have, you know, great EBITDA margins have existed for five, 10, 15 years that have, you know, uh, older founder owners who like want to retire. That's a massive opportunity, you know, real cash accretive businesses that there's, there's so much opportunity there, but that's a little prohibitive in the sense that you have to have some capital, at least baseline capital to get there. Um, and yeah. And so I think you're going back to the other point. I don't think that those things that like that tech complexity is prohibitive to everybody, but I do think it's, it creates less broad spectrum, you know, opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Um, so, you know, and let's go, I'm really curious to understand how you think about business, right? So to me, my definition of entrepreneurship is largely two things. It's mm. delegation mm. and uh, problem solving, right? Yeah. So I'd like to unpack how you think about those two things. We'll start with like kind of yeah. problem solving because I know you, I've, I've you know, read and, and listened to other pods where you're an advocate for, if there's a problem here, I will pursue that problem as yeah. intensely as I can yeah. and, and efficiently as you can, right? Yeah. So can you maybe talk about what is your process around you, you, you come to a problem, yeah. Call it, you know, you can offer an example. Like how, how do you tackle that problem? Yeah. Uh, it was one of the uh, best examples that's near to me is actually jujitsu, like as, as a martial art, right? Um, and I'm not very good at it, um, but yeah, I, I use it as an interesting what like, belt are you? learning experience. What grade? But purple belt. Okay, so you're, yeah. you're not you're a yeah. noob. Yeah, I've been at it for six years, but <laughs> but 
The more you do it, the more you realize you're a noob. Like, <laughs> that's, that's the whole thing. Um, but um, so, yeah, like I think like looking at that and trying to learn that and understand that uh, and the principles all apply to business. Like I think having a – like using concepts to understand, in my opinion, is a much faster way to grasp knowledge, you know, and then use those concepts to play or experiment is the best way to like affirm that you are thinking about it right. So like as an example, um, you know, in jujitsu, like understanding, you know, the ideas of like position and control and submission and efficiency and action reaction, you know, these are really basic things and trying to understand how they play out is great to accelerate your understanding, but then you need to do the training, do the mat time, spar or whatever people want to call it, beat each other up. Right to do that. So in business, it's kind of the same thing. Like you, you want to understand these broad concepts. Okay, well, I have a product. There's ways to measure if it's good or bad. I use marketing to build demand for said product. There's ways to measure if it's good or bad. You know, I want to understand the relationship between those you know, two financially. There's ways to measure if that's good or bad. Um, getting really broad spectrum, like kind of you know simplistic or first principle understandings about those things is super useful. Up until the point that you then need to do it and. I, I talk a lot about this, uh, you know, continuum of having like an intellectual bias or an action bias. So some people really want to intellectualize things and understand them. Good, right? Some people really want to just do shit and get shit done. Also good. But only being one or the other is really unsafe. So you have to, in whatever order you choose, you know, intellectualize a little bit to kind of get the grassroots foundational understanding, take that and then take action to actually test and learn. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the whole problem solving piece for me is really about understanding ground level, taking that, experimenting, collecting feedback and data, iterating my understanding yeah, and going back. And this is just just the feedback loop, right? Yeah. 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 And and in terms of the delegation front, you know, you've scaled. How, how, how big, how many staff did you have at Sweat um, leading up to? Yeah, I think that, I think we got around 100, 120, I think. Yeah. Um, so you got like 120, you know, people, different mm-hmm. worldviews, different beliefs, yeah. different, you know, yeah. genders. Like how, what's your framework on managing and yeah. uh, you know, incentivizing people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, maybe a slightly counterintuitive view, like on the delegation piece, right? Like, I'm not done with my thinking about this, right? Because I saw you wrote it down, and I went away and did some thinking about whether I I agree with it or not. But <laughs> this idea that's like, do you ever really like does delegation really exist? Effectively, was the question I posed to myself, which was that if you have a good, a well organized uh, group of people you're never delegating in the sense that they were employed to do a job and they do the job. So you're not delegating work to them. It's just that's the responsibility of the role. If you look at a really early on company, obviously you have to be a jack of all trades initially, but eventually you phase out of being a jack of all trades and you end up with just a, a team structure where people do what they should do. Yep. Um, but yeah, look, I think like with with the people and you know, like business and people management thing, my, my view is like perhaps a little mechanical. And so it's this idea that, you know, performance first, engagement second. And what I mean by that is that, yeah, don't attempt to make, well, make people happy or like love their work and then ask them to perform later because it's a very, like it's not a sturdy foundation to operate from. Um, Yeah, we should seek to help them get to the point where they can perform and otherwise do their job and need to do what they do and then find ways to make that engaging, right? Because otherwise you're kind of leading yourself down the unsafe garden path, if you will. And then that ultimately brings you back to like, well, what actually is the idea of performance? And like, it sounds like a really stupid like question, but what does that mean? Because if you want to incentivize someone, well, for what? It's for performance. And then this becomes a really broad question. But you know, in my opinion, effectively, 
To employ means to make use of. So an employee is someone we want to make use of for a particular reason. That is always work. We want to make you do work. We want that work done because that generates a result and that result is you know what you calibrate performance against plus behavior. So the framework I've always used that you know employee performance management is really I use this framework called Uber, which is OOBA, outputs and outcomes, i.e. the role is designed to deliver work and that work should achieve an outcome. And then your behavior and attitude, that's the you know, the overlap. Yeah. And so I've always looked at this like even if you're a really nice person but you deliver shit results, you're out. Yeah. Right. If you're a really shit person but you deliver epic results, you're out. Right. So you have to deliver results and be a great contributor to you know to the culture. Yeah. And then so the way you build that and foster that or incentivize that basically. So one, you must have an incredibly tight business performance management cycle. So I would look at this, you know, weekly business reviews, monthly business reviews, quarterly business reviews, quarterly employee performance reviews, all of that sort of, you know, basic stuff. Yep. Um, and then you lay over a really, um, you know, simplistic kind of articulation of your operating values. So behaviors and, and um, attitudes that you expect that will exist and then you design a cadence around removing or curbing that right so for example a lot of people would look at like a company town hall let's all get together and just talk about the business as a useless activity uh, from a people management perspective it's like well you could use that to talk about company performance so item number one performance well you're incentivizing performance by doing that item number two you know, employee of the month, but why are they employee of the month? Well, they either performed really well against, you know, outputs and outcomes or they did something that was culturally awesome. Yeah. And so... It's the company values in, in some way. Right. And so, like, just as an example, so if your goal was to incentivize performance against outputs, outcomes, behavior, and attitude, well, the top two items that you've made interesting to the company are, well, did we win or lose? Objectively, one. And two, who are the people that are doing the things that we otherwise want to see? And then the third part, which is a little bit more invisible, is over time, it's your job to prune. Prune people that don't perform. Prune people that don't have the right attitude. Because a lot of the time, there's this like um, invisible, silent performance deteriorator, you know, which is not getting rid of idiots yeah. or rude people or underperformers. Because in the same way that you can run a town hall and talk about performance and talk about good values, you're proactively or you know, explicitly you know, signaling that those things are good you implicitly signal that being rude is okay if someone talks out of turn or is abusive or toxic. You implicitly signal that being lazy is okay if you walk past a group of people doing nothing for an hour three or four times in your office tour and they just sit there and you say nothing. You know, you implicitly suggest that performance is okay if you do a leadership team monthly business review and four out of five functions do great, one does terribly and you ask no questions and you don't push on it. Yeah, so a lot of this is actually in some regards, build the foundation and structure to actually have, you know, it operate. But then it's the level of discipline required to actually hold people, you know, to account. And that's like, I, I talk about this quite a lot with the people that I work with and even the people who are in my team now. I'm like, this is a little simplistic, but, you know, the gap between where someone is in their career, you know, performance-wise and where they want to be is normally a, a product of time because yeah. there's always time. And then that there's a deficit in your capacity to be responsible or disciplined at the level that you need to be. And, and a really easy way of looking at that is athletes, right? You know, there is no secret why Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or LeBron James or whatever, they're not good at basketball. They're not even good in the NBA. They are the best of the best of the best. And if you look at their training regime, mentally, physically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it will be night and day. 
you know, versus everyone else that was there. And so if you look at an organization, the difference between a junior marketer, a head of marketing, a CMO at a small company, a medium one or a large one normally is time and the discipline and responsibility required to actually do you know, the work that needs to be done, which is behavior and attitude and generating results. That stuff's just so exhausting to me. Like I, I'm an accountant yeah. <laughs> and then the stereotype is like mostly true. Um, yeah. you know, Credits not, and debits. Yeah, debits are great, black and white. Yeah. People management, not my thing. Like mm. I actually hate it. It's probably yeah. the worst part of my job and mm. thankfully we have people that do a lot yeah. of that. Um, is that. Is that people management natural? Does that come natural to you? No, I was terrible at it. Yeah. Uh, and and the, was uh, still the, I was going to say, there's a solid argument that I'm not great at it, yeah. but I'm less terrible yeah. Yeah, than, I, than I was. Yeah. Um, and I think like, it's, it's an interesting point that you make because a lot of people, and especially in small business, come with this belief that they like they have to do it all. Yeah. And there's this really you know, interesting idea uh, and like subtle difference between does people management need to all be an individual capability or can it be a business capability, right? And, and again, like, you know, just as a, just as an, as an aside note, right? Like you don't design a company based on what has worked for somebody else. You take learnings about categorically why it worked and you augment that to, to work for you as the founder. Like, so for example, like when I started, I was not a finance and ops expert. So I bought in a lot of people who are really strong at that. I was, I was all right at marketing and product. So early on, I didn't feel the need, you know, to spend heaps of money on that. Right. And so the business capability or individual capability thing is a really interesting thing for a lot of people that are not like that. And, you know, just to be clear, starting a business or being an entrepreneur or a founder, people who are great at people management and ops are normally not attracted to that in the same way that people that are attracted to taking risk and starting a business are not normally attracted to structure and people management. Yeah, like there, there, there's, the, there's a Venn diagram. There's an overlap for sure. Yeah. But mostly it's not the same individual, yeah. right? Um, and so... When you look at that, you know, you can implement really basic like systems and processes and policies, which I view as business capability that will be there forever, even if the people leave and new people come in. But that that kind of mandates like 75 or 80% of the battle, right? So for you, then rather having like 100% of the people management responsibility, it's like, well, we have public performance reviews for the company. You own your functions. Like it's It's kind of publicly obvious, like whether you're winning or losing. I don't need to proactively follow you up all the time because I have a four and weekly, monthly, quarterly that'll do that. Then I have a quarterly review with you for people management. That's my 20% or whatever, where we will look at these results and I will provide you feedback. And after a short period of time, if we're not getting that, then I'll, I will graciously support your transition out. Yeah. And sometimes they don't want it to be gracious, but you know, you'll, you'll graciously support the transition out. And like, I, I can confidently say that like 95% of my stress and like wasted energy and emotion pretty much was people management early on. It got, it got, it declined over time as my skills hopefully got incrementally better. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people start from this position that like they have to be great at it all. And it's like, you don't, you just need to be good enough yeah. that it's not destroying what you're trying to build. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you've got the, the benefit of like advising founders now uh, based on your experience, you know, you, yeah. when you work with 17 yeah. consulting business, yeah. like what's the the main pain point you see across you know, all the, the major blocks um, yeah. that you see across the business that you advise? So, so, so as a runoff of the point I made before, it really is just varying degrees of discipline. Yeah. You know, so do are things defined well? You know, are, are decisions even made? Not good ones. Are decisions even made? You know, like because the the early on um, you know journey for a lot of people is that they're the boss, they're in the control seat, rah rah rah. No one holds them accountable. That's yeah. a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
you know, and then that then leads them to allow, be allowed to avoid the things that they otherwise need to do, people management, business management, et cetera, et cetera. And most of the problems are kind of the same. They don't have great reporting. Because they don't have great reporting, there's a lot of like subjective rah-rah debate. You know, the subjective rah-rah debate ends up becoming arguments because people don't have sophisticated ways to communicate. Yeah. And that's the next one is that the communication in the organizations are normally bad. And so because of these like um, either unsophisticated or outright lacking kind of business and people management uh, you know, foundations, so much stuff kind of goes to waste you know, and the stress and all that like compounds. Because yeah. like fun- fundamentally building a business – once you've got the right skills and team, doesn't actually need to be stressful, but getting to that point really is. But that the time horizon for people to kind of go through that transition is normally reflective of their ability to make the necessary decisions, have the level of discipline that's required, and you know do what needs to be done. Yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, so I can switch gears a little bit to talk about the the, fi- the money side of your yeah. life. So you know, it sounds like you're already financially successful even before yeah. selling the business, right? You mentioned yeah. your. 10 7 to 10 mil revenue yep. second year of business so like yep. how did you come from money no no so i left home when i was 16 you left home yeah like yeah uh, why why'd you got on my car left and then you just left yeah, yeah. okay it didn't go back right okay yeah. so you were <laughs> without a home <laughs> effectively effectively broke for a really long time yeah, yeah. and so yeah. okay so you then you're doing pt and stuff so that was your paying paying rent whatever yep. and then i guess you start first iteration of sweat you sell yep. ebooks you yep. know Tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. How does that change you come from someone who's come from nothing to like mm. suddenly a lot relative yeah. to yeah. your age and yep. career trajectory? Yeah. So obviously I can only talk to my experience. You know, so this is not necessarily like a, a rule. Um, and again, going back to like, I'll try to tell what actually happens, not the way I see the world now. Cause I see it very differently. Obviously the way I did then, but so yeah, to put it into perspective, you go from making like 17 bucks an hour, right. Um, working, a couple of half days a week, do PT, make a couple hundred grand a year run rate within 12 or 18 months, do some franchises, make the better part of a million run rate you know, after a couple of years, do digital, make 10 plus million. Right? You know, so you can see the curve is incredibly steep. So you know, um, at, at an earlier point in time, um, and I see this happen a lot with other people that I advise now, different financial numbers, but you know, emotionally the same thing. It's like, I've I effectively gone to this point where I was like, well, I must be pretty good. I must actually know a lot of things other people don't, yep. which is not an entirely irrational view when you have that level of you know, experience and, and exposure. Yep. And so um, I, I now refer to this as like the Midas touch bias. So it's like you've done a couple of things and they've worked really well. Well, fuck everything I do is going to go great. Yeah. Some people call it, you know, confirmation bias, survivorship bias, however you want it. There's lots of subtle different versions here, but I call it the Midas touch bias. And then so then inevitably what happens after that is you make a whole bunch of really stupid decisions and you lose, right? Um, not much losing happened for me, unfortunately, for quite a long time. But I say unfortunately, genuinely, like as in I think it would have been yeah, would have been a really useful benefit for me. So I actually got to sort of, yeah, 2016, 17 uh, and was beginning my personal development journey at that point. So before it was really all just like hustle hard, like, you know, let's go for a few years. Anyway, I came to this conclusion that that was really bad. Like it was a really bad place to be to think that I was winning. I was the boss. I had way more money than most people my age and all of my friends. I'd achieved more success than most of them, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, that's actually not a good thing. What was the realization? What, what triggered you to, to have that? I started reading. So I, I'd read quite a lot as a kid and then I had a bit of a break when I left home or whatever. And then I kind of you know, had gotten back into it. Um, 
and uh, you know, you know, reading like you know, behavioral economics, you know, psychology, Kahneman. Uh, yeah, 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 Daniel Kahneman, yeah, thinking fast and slow. Um, you know, got like all the Adlerian psychology, Rogerian psychology stuff, and started studying through that. I was like, okay, I'm really, I've got work to do. <laughs> this is really not a good thing. Yeah. Um, and so I decided uh, around the same time, I was like, I'm going to go snowboarding because I like the snow, but I'd never been. Um, and I'm going to jump out of a helicopter and snowboard down a mountain. That was the thing, right? Number one, and number two, I'm going to start MMA, right? And this was because I was like, I wanted to be really bad at something. Humbled. Yeah, yeah I wanted to. I wanted to. I wanted to have the emotional experience that I had not been having yeah for quite some time. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I wanted contrast. And anyway, so long story short, you know, jumped out of the helicopter, did the snowboarding. Well, I was terrible at it, but it was good fun. Um, but the MMA was the real thing. This is how I got eventually into got into jujitsu. That was the real thing. So like my first couple of classes, I got choked out by a person unconscious. I was like 20 kilos heavier than. And so like as a guy, you go to the gym, lift some weights, think I'm pretty strong, you know, all this sort of crap. I was like, all right, all right, interesting. You know, what's, what's the problem I'm trying to solve here? And of course, when you're at the beginning of that, you know, uh, people refer to this as the Dunning-Kruger effect. You're kind of at the beginning of that competence journey. You've got super high confidence and, you know, you're going into have a crack and I was like, I can problem solve this. Like, I can problem solve this. Anyway. So about a year later, I'm still getting choked out constantly. Right. And like my people were a lot smaller than me, you know, um, men and women, you know, it was like, it was pretty, pretty interesting experience. And the kind of the deeper that I got into that, the more I realized I was like, holy crap, I might, so I'm having this learning that things are not as simple as I think they are. There's a lot more nuance and complexity that happened around the same time that I started to have some losses in business. And so I had this like sort of parallel journey going on where I was like, okay, I'm having a different experience in jujitsu, but I'm still losing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then in business, I was like, okay, I'm making some mistakes here. I was recruiting some really senior people that didn't work, lost heaps of money, fired them, you know, so on and so forth. We're having a lot of these challenges kind of getting through this next phase of growth all at the same time. Um, and that effectively all but eradicated, you know, my minus touch bias. I was like, okay, well, this is harder than, you know, I thought it was going to be. That made me study more. And it also made me get a psychologist, like a coach, an executive psych, you know, to come work with me. Um, that was the next really big humbling thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because I went from, um, yeah, and again, yeah, at this point, I'm sort of like 24 or 25 years old or whatever, you know, think I'm pretty good still, but realizing that maybe I'm not as good as I thought. You know, and then I sit down in a room and it took me a while to find the right coach, but I eventually found one. And I sat down in the room with this guy and I was like, okay, well, I've just gone from thinking that I'm the smartest person in the room to realizing I don't even fucking touch the edge with this guy. Like, this guy is decades ahead of me and so I, at the end of my like you know first or second catch up with him I was like cool give me 10 books 10 books that I can read you know that are going to help like massively accelerate this journey so he gives me a list of 10 I read them in about two weeks come back and he's like what'd you learn I was like well every single one of those books disagrees with each other and he's like great let's talk about that and he's like why do you think that is I'm like well some of them must be wrong and he's like what if they're all right and this was the beginning of this massive learning that like the idea of right and good is way too simple. Like it's it's effectively an entirely flawed concept. This is the right thing in this context at this time, subject to these criteria. This is good, subject to this objective at this time for this criteria. And that to me was like a mind blowing you know concept at the time that immediately let me forward to I am not great at anything. I'm actually barely even good at these things. And that was effectively the true beginning of my you know humility journey, which eventually led to me being able to exit the company and doing all these things um and then subsequently ending up with money and then realizing that you start again at ground zero and you know nothing and so there's lots of these like interesting kind of you know humility you know milestones along the journey but for me those first couple with 
martial arts and the reading and you're know, getting an exec coach or whatever, they were like quantum leaps. Yeah. My journey. Yeah. And so financially speaking, the, what were the, what were the, like to people talk about money is a unit mm. of yeah. basically units of, you know, time to, mm. to buy back time. Right. So yeah. what would have been biggest unlocks for you personally that money has unlocked lifestyle or performance or, yeah. you know, other categories. What? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, throughout my learning journey, I uh, realized that I can live with way less money than I thought. So I spent a couple hundred grand a year for my, my base living expenses. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it the, that amount of money gives me the time to do what I want to do now. It's yeah. like freedom and flexibility. Um, over, so since, uh, yeah, since about 2017, I've spent about $1.3 million on development, yep. like professional personal, development. Personal development, yep. 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 In, in what um, way, like you mentioned the psych. Yep, so um, probably close to half a million dollars on that or related services. Um, lots of, you know, uh, different like psych assessments and profiling, learning content, courses, you know, educational courses, online or in person. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, traveling to just go and meet with certain people just to, you know, like connect. It was like the reason we connected, I was like, I can learn from you. That was literally the reason I reached out. I was like, you know things because I was reading your content online. I was like, I can recognize that you think about things the same way that I do, but you're far more sophisticated in this specific area. I want to talk to you because you can help me learn things. And so that cost me money because I flew here, you know, whatever, and we caught up, you know, that first time. So like th those sorts of things, you know, really where the money has gone. But you can't do that without... The money you can do some of it without the money but it's a lot easier and also connecting with people um i don't like this reality but it is a reality but like trying to connect with people when you have a public record of having won at something mm. is a lot easier than when you haven't mm. right and so like for me now most people that i want to reach out to, to talk to to learn from and they're very often surprised by that i recently connected with another guy who i'm about to catch up with who's one of australia's kind of best e-com guys and i was like oh hey man i'd love to learn from you he's like that's weird like because they have this assumption that I don't know. I, I know stuff. I haven't sold a business for $400 million. Like, yeah, why are you asking me these yeah. questions? <laughs> and I'm like, but that's an unsafe way to think about it, right? Because yeah. I'm like, you know heaps more about this thing than I do. Same that you know, you know a lot more about a lot of you know, finance side of things and probably investing and stuff too. But yeah, I think that investment of time and money is valid, but it does become easier when you have a public track record of having achieved something that people believe to be good. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so do you sometimes wish, do you think that overall that public brand, the public image has been mm. net positive or, or net negative to you? Because uh, you, you seem like a very um, thoughtful, introverted mm, character. Mm. Um, the, the idea of being on the front page of yeah. AFR rich lists or whatever <laughs> would be yeah. frightening or maybe yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. So I think, I think the most valuable media that I ever got was the negative stuff. Yeah. Um, because like, I believe, so like, it's, you know, jujitsu, right? It's all good. I can voluntarily go there and choose to be uncomfortable. I'm, I can be uncomfortable on my terms. Yeah. You know, being like outright publicly hated or like shamed or attacked or like whatever it is or any other examples of these things that are in completely against your own control. I lost a deal in 2019 completely out of my control. I think that those things are actually, they're even better, you know, development journeys. They're not comfortable, unenjoyable, but they're, <laughs> they're incredibly good development, you know, journeys. Yeah. Um, so I think the, you know, the media, good and bad, it's net positive for like personal development emotionally. Um, and I think it's also like net positive because uh, there's at least some public belief that I know something about something that allowed me to have some sort of success that people believe is good. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so with that, with that in mind, do you, do you ever get anxious that you might lose it all? Like you come all from all, nothing. All, all, all the got, time. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah, so where do you, where do you, where does that, does that come from your, 
your upbringing or yeah. just like I've worked so hard to get here. Yeah. Um, so so my my model about money, uh, like my, my mental model, my belief system about yeah. money was um, I'm not 100% sure it could be built worse. Um, so, so like my, in my childhood, um, for a variety of reasons, um, not having ac- academic qualifications, not having status and not making money made you worthless. So that was the, the lesson that I learned. Yeah. And I, I observed that through kind of verbal, you know, um, language, uh, you know, I also observed a lot of like, um, you know, scarcity mindset and fear mindset. You should always save your money, never spend it, never invest it, don't do any of that because it's all a fraud, it's all a lie. Yeah, my mum used to like get her weekly paycheck, withdraw it, get envelopes, label them based on her budget and put the money into individual ones, put it in her handbag and carry it around. My my father-in-law right. still does that. There you yeah. go, right? Yeah, so that was that was the way it was you know done. So when you've got that kind of like you know, fear and scarcity behavior around you plus not having money and being told that not having money makes you useless, yeah. like that it's pretty reasonable to then say, well, I want money. I want enough money to not you know, have to worry about it. Yeah. Which like early on in my journey was was certainly a motivator. Uh, you know, later on it became less of a motivator. I realized that I actually just love the game and that's why I want to play. Um, and then of course, this interesting like transition happens and it's an invisible transition. That is that you eventually get to a point in time where you have enough money. If you didn't do anything completely dumb, you'll have enough money forever, but you don't consciously, that's not like a a speed bump you go over that reminds you that you've hit it, right? And so my, my coach and I had this conversation when I lost the first deal. He's like, well, how much money you make from your investments? And I was like, okay, X. And he's like, okay, can you live on that? And I was like, yeah. He's like, what's the problem? I'm like, well, I don't like that. I don't like the idea of losing. He's like, cool, but that has no relation to whether or not you're financially secure. Mm. Yeah, and so yeah, th- that was a the beginning of my you know one of my other like you know kind of big turning points, and then so then eventually you exit if you are lucky to exit or whatever it is that you achieve, and you get you know it normally it kind of comes in dribs and drabs, big checks or whatever that come over time depending on the way that you've done the deal and whatever um, and who's bought it, but um you know got that kind of like you know first you know big like lump sum check, and you know there's this really short period of time where that's like uh, novel and like fun and cool and then shortly after that um because you know i bought a new place had exited the company i wasn't employed anymore you know i kind of get to you know monday morning go and have breakfast my favorite cafe go home didn't have a bed because i just moved house i was like sort of sitting on the floor on an inflatable mattress i was like well firstly like what the hell do i even want to do in life and who the hell am i and then secondly well i'm looking at this like bank balance i'm like that's great no pride of course can't feel pride for that no pride at all and i'm sitting there and i'm going okay so I spent years of my life, you know, trying to like get to this point in time now. And like, if I touch that, it'll, it'll disappear. Yeah. And so that's another whole different type of mentality to navigate. And I say this to people all the time. They're like, you spend all this time trying to build money so you can have a great lifestyle and you get the money and you're like, well, what the hell do you want to do with it? Well, you want to invest it. You don't want to lose it, but then you have no idea about investing. Yeah. It's yeah. It's like Like, keeping money or preserving wealth is different to making it right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like avoid permanent capital destruction. Yeah. But then that's a really big, um, you're demotivated to do anything, yeah. right? And so in some regards, like building wealth is actually easier than keeping it. And again, I think there's a lot of data actually that suggests that that's not untrue generation to generation. Um, but yeah, the emotional journey with money is 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 really hard, like really, really hard. Um, and like even now, so in so like with Easy License, for example, I'm the biggest investor. Um, you know, I'm CEO. I take a very small salary, you know, all this sort of stuff from the business. Um, but like... I actually sort of like have this like constant internal battle. I'm like, I know I know my stuff. 
I can kind of see how this will play out one of several ways. And so like I invest my own money into the business and I continue to be the biggest investor in, you know, all, all the money that's gone into it. But that's that's still fear. Yeah. There's still fear there. I use believability-based decision-making to overrule the fear, but it's not like there's none there. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm not sure if having no fear is a good idea either because, yeah. So it's, it's this like balance, right? Yeah. And if you so if you had a pie chart of your allocation of like mm-hmm. investments or money, like what yeah. does that typically look like? Um, yeah. yeah, like yeah, like on I guess like on a net asset basis. Yeah. Um, try and think, depending on how you allocate book value. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, Half you, the stuff's subjective. But. Yeah, yeah, twenty x revenue model. Yeah. Um, no, I think yeah, you probably look at like. I'd say about 50% of my money, give or take, is deployed into like backing myself to build things. Okay. Yeah. That's that's still quite – yeah. it's high conviction. And, yeah. Um, you know, you've got the track record to yeah. demonstrate that. Uh, maybe – and then out of the remaining 50, like say maybe yeah, 10 or 15 points of that are in like, you know, like income yielding, boring, bonds, bonds or blah, 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 whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then kind of the remaining balance that is split over a variety of kind of like medium and high risk, you know, investments like – my, my goal actually, and this is more of a novelty, but it, it, it's kind of a real you know goal I want to work towards. I actually don't have any money in anything unless I own it. And, and purely that's because like uh, from a from a uh, investment principles basis, it's, uh, I don't believe that like broad diversification is great long, like super long term. Um, you should concentrate but in a small pool of things and that's diversified, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, things that you have influence or control over. Yeah, example. yeah, right. Which, yeah. yeah, and that leads me to my next point, which is like, so if we you know, kind of believe in any version of like Keynesian economics and efficient market hypothesis, it's like, well, it's going to kind of do what it's going to do unless you have special skills and knowledge, you're not really going to win. Yeah. I'm like, well, if I own things and I have some degree of active involvement yeah. and I have any belief that the data of my experience indicates that I can do things at or better at or a higher standard than other people in market. market, yeah then it would be illogical yep. or irrational to get out of that. Yep. The problem that I have at the moment, which is that there's a, this is just the anachronistic nature of you know, investing in returns, it's matching the right opportunity at the right time with that. So like, even if I had $100 now, I can't just go $100 into something yep. I want because exactly. it's the opportunity timing, right? Hence, keeping some money in you know, cash or cash equivalents, some in semi-liquid, you know, medium to high risk like assets. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good point because I think when people say to me, you know, my personal wealth strategies, I just put everything in index funds, yeah. right? Like that's I've got the business, which is, you know, the yeah. stuff we can take a bit more risk on where we yeah. think. But even on index funds, like I'll be comfortable that I'll return, you know, 7 8%, yeah. which it's done so. Vanguard uh, or whatever you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Vanguard ETF. It, yeah. It's done that for the last 50 years. Will it do that? In few, who knows? But probably based yeah. on history. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the question is, what edge do I have? I have, I have zero edge, which is mm. initially why I don't invest in public stocks either because mm. I'm like, I'm competing against the rest of the world. Yeah. There are a lot of you know, hedge fund managers, people a lot smarter than me yeah. buying public stocks. I'm going to pick it. Like, yeah. and, you know. But you know, in private investments that we do, there is, I like to think that we have some influence or control or some mm. edge that we can yeah. beat you know, our own market or whatever the standard is in, in yeah. that industry or category, um, which is the bets that we, we mm. play. And, and so that, that's how I sleep at night. Yeah. Um, so interesting that you take that same approach, but you're probably less about the diversification. You're like, well, I'm just going to go mm. all in and diversify things like yeah. control, which is, I think, I mean, I read like Alex Mosey, that that's kind of his approach. Um, yeah. It's like, yeah. Well, even like, you know, like Charlie Munger and Buffett talk about this as well. They're like, you know, the idea of diversification. It's like, 
why, why do you need to put money in all these more things? Well, because you believe it reduces the risk. It's yeah. like, well, what's the risk? Well, you think that some of them are susceptible to you know significant you know, external market factors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, well, just find ones that are less susceptible. Yeah. Invest like, in stuff you understand. Yeah. And but, know, yeah. but when you look at the, I mean, this is a rabbit hole, right? When you look at the finance industry, it's not structured that way. You know, like brokers are incentivized to sell stocks. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, they're not incentivized to get you a high return, despite that that's very often the pitch, right? Yep. And so that that instantly, like that single dynamic, renders most of the advice published globally almost as redundant, right? And then to your point, it's like, well, if there is huge you know, organizations, Vanguard, BlackRock, or whatever that have done this, and for fifty years they've kind of generated these results, it's like, well, they probably will do better, yeah, blended because it's it's a blend of risk, yep. right? You know, then you know, stock picking. Right, like it, it wouldn't be reasonable to say that that's a better idea. Yeah, yeah, and and also as well, like although we like to think that we know a lot about anything, like as in as a species, you know, that we know a lot about you know like money and finance. Like we've really only been at this for a short time. Yeah, like speaking. a couple of hundred years. It's not really a long time, and and you know, and again, this comes from listening to people like. Ray Dalio, you know, read all his books and whatever, and I would never profess to really understand much of it. I can kind of generally grasp the concept and idea. But you listen to that guy and you kind of listen to the argument, like, that seems pretty reasonable. This is a part of a really, really big system. It's a really, really big system. So why would we think that, like, putting money in that one individual stock at this point in time, like, what do we even know? Yeah. Like, nothing. So it's like, okay, well, I back myself. I'm going to back myself to do, you know, businesses. And they don't need to be, like, sexy or cool. We've spoken about this, right? Like, I don't care if it's a publicly a cool business or not like the coolest thing to me is like winning in that game and that's normally measured by uh commercial metrics yeah. it's not measured by media headlines or if it's a cool tech or trending or whatever it's like i just i just want to win is there anything yeah. that you want to share with the audience or um anything you want to say um no, I just honestly thank, thanks for having me on um and thanks for responding to me when i reached out initially oh, no, a, thank you I, I, I saw that i was like Huh, I know this guy. Like, <laughs> what are you up to, man? Yeah. Right. Well, we're, we're here now. We're yeah, here now. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you again. It's, nah. it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks, Toby. Cheers. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could take a moment and uh, leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We've got plenty more episodes coming your way, so make sure you subscribe on your app of choice. You can also find more financial insights at starknakednumbers.com or follow me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Andrew, and this has been the Stark Naked Numbers Podcast.